following is a letter from J.R.R. Tolkien himself. If anyone tells you anything different, this is the man's own words. They're wrong, and he's right, because it's his story. From a letter by J.R.R. Tolkien to Milton Waldman, 1951. My dear Milton, you asked for a brief sketch of my stuff that is connected with my imaginary world. It is difficult to say anything without saying too much. The attempt to say a few words opens a floodgate of excitement. The egoist and artist at once desires to say how the stuff has grown, what it is like, and what he thinks he means or is trying to represent by it all. I shall inflict some of this on you, but I will append a mere resume of its contents, which is, maybe, all that you want or will have use or time for. In order of time, growth and composition, this stuff began with me, though I do not suppose that this is of much interest to anyone but myself. I mean, I do not remember a time when I was not building it. Many children make up or begin to make up imaginary languages. I have been at it since I could write, but I have never stopped, and of course, as a professional philologist, especially interested in linguistic aesthetics, I have changed in taste, improved in theory, and probably in craft. Behind my stories is now a nexus of languages, mostly only structurally sketched, but to those creatures which in English I call misleadingly elves are assigned two related languages more nearly completed, whose history is written and whose forms, representing two different sides of my own linguistic taste, are deduced scientifically from a common origin. Out of these languages are made nearly all the names that appear in my legends. This gives a certain character, a cohesion, a consistency of linguistic style and an illusion of historicity to the nomenclature, or so I believe, that is markedly lacking in other comparable things. Not all will feel this as important as I do, since I am cursed by acute sensibility in such matters. But an equally basic passion of mine, ab inatio, was for myth, not allegory, and for fairy story, and above all for heroic legend on the brink of fairy tale and history, of which there is far too little in the world accessible to me for my appetite. I was an undergraduate before thought and experience revealed to me that these were not divergent interests, opposite poles of science and romance, but integrally related. I am not learned, though I have thought about them a good deal, in the matters of myth and fairy story, however, for in such things, as far as known to me, I have always been seeking material, things of a certain tone and air, and not simple knowledge. Also, and here I hope I shall not sound absurd, I was from early days grieved by the poverty of my own beloved country. It had no stories of its own, bound up with its tongue and soil, not of the quality that I sought, and found, as an ingredient, in legends of other lands. There was Greek and Celtic and Romance, Germanic, Scandinavian and Finnish, which greatly affected me, but nothing English, save impoverished chapbook stuff. Of course, there was and is all the Arthurian world, but powerful as it is, it is imperfectly naturalised, associated with the soil of Britain 
but not with English, and does not replace what I felt to be missing. For one thing, its fairy is too lavish and fantastical, incoherent and repetitive. For another and more important thing, it is involved in and explicitly contains the Christian religion. For reasons which I will not elaborate, uh, that seems to me fatal. Myth and fairy story must, as all art, reflect and contain in solution elements of moral and religious truth or error, but not explicit, not in the known form of the primary real world. I am speaking, of course, of our present situation, not of ancient pagan pre-Christian days, and I will not repeat what I tried to say in my essay which you read. Do not laugh. But once upon a time, my crest has long since fallen, I had a mind to make a body of more or less connected legend, ranging from the large and cosmogonic to the level of romantic fairy tale. The larger founded on the lesser in contact with the earth, the lesser drawing splendour from the vast backcloths, which I could dedicate simply to, to England, to my country. It should possess the tone and quality that are desired, somewhat cool and clear, be redolent of our air, the clime and soil of the northwest, meaning Britain and the hither parts of Europe, not Italy or the Aegean, still less the east. And while possessing, if I could achieve it, the fair elusive beauty that some call Celtic, though it is rarely found in genuine ancient Celtic things, it should be high, purged of the gross, and fit for the more adult mind of a land long now steeped in poetry. I would draw some of the great tales in fullness, and leave many only placed in the scheme and sketched. The cycles should be linked to a majestic whole, and yet leave scope for other minds and hands wielding paint and music and drama. Absurd. Of course, such an overweening purpose did not develop all at once. The mere stories were the thing. They arose in my mind as given things, and as they came separately, so too the links grew. An absorbing, though continually interrupted labour, especially since, even apart from the necessities of life, the mind would wing to the other pole and spend itself on the linguistics, yet always I had the sense of recording what was already there, somewhere, not of inventing. Of course, I made up and even wrote lots of other things, especially for my children. Some escaped from the grasp of this branching, acquisitive theme, being ultimately and radically unrelated. Leaf by Niggle and Farmer Giles, for instance. The only two that have been printed. The Hobbit, which has much more essential life in it, was quite independently conceived. I did not know as I began it that it belonged. But it proved to be the discovery of the completion of the whole, its mode of descent to earth and merging into history. As the high legends of the beginnings are supposed to look at things through elvish minds, so the middle tale of the Hobbit takes a virtually human point of view, and the last tale blends them. I dislike allegory, the conscious and intentional allegory, yet any attempt to explain the purport of myth or fairy tale must use allegorical language and of course 
The more life a story has, the more readily will it be susceptible of allegorical interpretations, while the better a deliberate allegory is made, the more nearly will it be acceptable just as a story. Anyway, all this stuff, it is, I suppose, fundamentally concerned with the problem of the relation of art and sub-creation and primary reality, is mainly concerned with fall, mortality and the machine. We fall inevitably, and that motive occurs in several modes, with mortality, especially as it affects art and the creative, or, as I should say, sub-creative desire, which seems to have no biological function and to be apart from the satisfactions of plain, ordinary biological life, with which, in our world, it is indeed usually at strife. This desire is at once wedded to a passionate love of the real primary world, and hence filled with the sense of mortality, and yet unsatisfied by it. It has various opportunities of fall. It may become possessive, clinging to the things made as its own. The sub-creator wishes to be the lord and god of his private creation. He will rebel against the laws of the Creator, especially against mortality. Both of these, alone or together, will lead to the desire for power, for making the will more quickly effective, and so to the machine or magic. And by the last I intend all use of external plans or devices, apparatus, instead of developments of the inherent inner powers or talents, or even the use of these talents with the corrupted motive of dominating, bulldozing the real world, or coercing of the wills. The machine is our more obvious modern form, though more closely related to magic than is usually recognised. I have not used magic consistently, and indeed the elven Queen Galadriel is obliged to remonstrate with the hobbits on their confused use of the word, both for the devices and operations of the enemy, and for those of the elves. I have not, because there is not a word for the latter, since all human stories have suffered the same confusion, uh, but the elves are there, in my tales, to demonstrate the difference. Their magic is art, delivered from many of its human limitations. More effortless, more quick, more complete product and vision in unflawed correspondence. And its object is art, not power. A sub-creation, not domination and tyrannous reforming of creation. The elves are immortal, at least as far as this world goes, and hence are concerned rather with the griefs and burdens of deathlessness in time and change than with death. The enemy, in successive forms, is always naturally concerned with sheer domination, and so the lord of magic and machines, but the problem that this frightful evil can and does rise from an apparently good root, the desire to benefit the world, and others. Uh, note, not in the beginner of evil. His was a sub-creative fall. And hence, the elves, the representatives of sub-creation par excellence, 
were peculiarly his enemies and the special object of his desire and hate, and open to his deceits. Therefore, is into possessiveness, and, to a less degree, into perversion of their art to power. Continued, speedily and according to the benefactor's own plans, is a recurrent motive. The cycles begin with a cosmogonical myth, the music of the Ainur, God and the Valar, or powers, English as gods, are revealed. These latter are, as we should say, angelic powers, whose function is to excise delegated authority in their spheres, of rule and government, not creation, making or remaking. They are divine, that is, were originally outside and existed before the making of the world. Their power and wisdom is derived from their knowledge of the cosmogonical drama, which they perceived first as a drama, that is, as in a fashion we perceive a story composed by someone else, and later as a reality. On the side of mere narrative device, this is, of course, meant to provide beings of the same order of beauty, power and majesty as the gods of higher mythology, which can yet be accepted, well, shall we say boldly, by a mind that believes in the Blessed Trinity. It moves then swiftly to the history of the elves, or the Silmarillion proper, to the world as we perceive it, but of course transfigured in a still half-mythical mode, that is, it deals with rational incarnate creatures of more or less comparable stature with our own. The knowledge of the creation drama was incomplete, incomplete in each individual god, and incomplete if all the knowledge of the pantheon were pooled, for, partly to redress the evil of the rebel Melkor, partly for the completion of all in an ultimate finesse of detail, the creator had not revealed all. The making and nature of the children of God were the two chief secrets. All that the gods knew was that they would come at appointed times. The children of God are thus primevally related and akin, wholly other to the gods in the making of which the gods played no part. They are the object of the special desire and love of the gods. These are the firstborn, the elves, and the followers, men. The doom of the elves is to be immortal, to love the beauty of the world, to bring it to full flower with their gifts of delicacy and perfection, to last while it lasts, never leaving it, even when slain, but returning, and yet, when the followers come, to teach them and make way for them to fade as the followers grow and absorb the life from which both proceed. The doom, or the gift, of men is mortality, freedom from the circles of the world. Uh, since the point of view of the whole cycle is the elvish, mortality is not explained mythically. It is a mystery of God of which no more is known than that what God has purposed for men is hidden. A grief and an envy to the immortal elves. As I say, the legendary Silmarillion is peculiar and differs from all similar things that I know in not being anthropocentric its centre of view and interest is not men, but elves. Men come in inevitably, after all the author is a man, and he has an audience. They will be men, and men must come in 
to our tales, as such, and not merely transfigured or partially represented as elves, dwarves, hobbits, etc. But they remain peripheral, latecomers, and, however growingly important, not principles. In the cosmogony, there is a fall. A fall of angels, we should say. Though quite different in form, of course, to that of Christian myth, these tales are new. They are not directly derived from other myths and legends, but they must inevitably contain a large measure of ancient, widespread motives or elements. After all, I believe that legends and myths are largely made of truth, and indeed present aspects of it that can only be received in this mode. And long ago, certain truths and modes of this kind were discovered and must always reappear. There cannot be any story without a fall. All stories are ultimately about the fall, at least not for human minds as we know them and have them. So, proceeding, the elves have a fall before their history can become storial. The first fall of man, for reasons explained, nowhere appears. Men do not come on the stage until... All that is long past, and there is only a rumour that for a while they fell under the domination of the enemy, and that some repented. The main body of the tale, the Silmarillion proper, is about the fall of the most gifted kindred of the elves, their exile from Valinor, a kind of paradise, the home of the gods, in the furthest west, their re-entry into Middle-earth, the land of their birth but long under the rule of the enemy, and their strife with him, the power of evil still visibly incarnate. It receives its name because the events are all threaded upon the fate and significance of the Silmarilli, radiance of pure light, or primeval jewels. By the making of gems, the sub-creative function of the elves is chiefly symbolised, but the Silmarilli were more than just beautiful things as such. There was light, there was the light of Valinor, made visible in the two trees of silver and gold. Note, as far as all this has symbolic or allegorical significance, light is such a primeval symbol in the nature of the universe that it can hardly be analysed. The light of Valinor, derived from light before any fall, is the light of art undivorced from reason, that sees things both scientifically or philosophically and imaginatively or sub-creatively and says that they are good as beautiful. The light of sun or moon is derived from the trees only after they were sullied by evil. Continued. These were slain by the enemy out of malice and Valinor was darkened, though from them, ere they died utterly, were derived the lights of sun and moon. A marked difference here between these legends and most others is that the sun is not a divine symbol, but a second best thing, and the light of the sun, the world under the sun, become terms for a fallen world and a dislocated, imperfect vision. But the chief artificer of the elves, Fëanor, had imprisoned the light of the Valinor in the three supreme jewels, the Silmarilli, before the trees were sullied or slain. This light thus lived thereafter only in these gems. 
The fall of the elves comes about through the possessive attitude of Feanor and his seven sons to these gems. They are captured by the enemy, set in his iron crown and guarded in his impenetrable stronghold. The sons of Feanor take a terrible and blasphemous oath of enmity and vengeance against all or any, even of the gods who dare to claim any part or right in the Silmarilli. They pervert the greater part of their kindred, who rebel against the gods and depart from paradise, and go to make hopeless war upon the enemy. The first fruit of their fall is war in paradise, the slaying of elves by elves, and this, and their evil oath, dogs all their later heroism, generating treacheries and undoing all victories. The Silmarillion is the history of the war of the exiled elves against the enemy, which all takes place in the northwest of the world, Middle-earth. Several tales of victory and tragedy are caught up in it, but it ends with catastrophe and the passing of the ancient world, the world of the long first age. The jewels are recovered by the final intervention of the gods, only to be lost forever to the elves, one in the sea, one in the deeps of the earth, and one as a star of heaven. This legendarium ends with a vision of the end of the world, its breaking and remaking, and the recovery of the Silmarilli and the light before the sun. After a final battle, which owes, I suppose, more to the Norse vision of Ragnarok than to anything else, though it is not much like it. As the stories become less mythical and more like stories and romances, men are interwoven. For the most part, these are good men, families and their chiefs who, rejecting the service of evil and hearing rumours of the gods of the West and the High Elves, flee westward and come into contact with the exiled elves in the midst of their war. The men who appear are mainly those of the free houses of the fathers of men, whose chieftains become allies of the Elf Lords. The contact of men and elves already foreshadows the history of the later ages, and a recurrent theme is the idea that in men, as they now are, there is a strand of blood and inheritance derived from the elves, and that the art and poetry of men is largely dependent on it, or modified by it. Note. Of course, in reality, this only means that my elves are only a representation or an apprehension of a part of human nature. But that is not the legendary mode of talking. End note. There are thus... Two marriages of mortal and elf, both later coalescing in the kindred of Erendil, represented by Elrond, the half-elven, who appears in all the stories, even The Hobbit. The chief of the stories of the Silmarillion, and the one most fully treated, is the story of Berin and Luthien, the elf maiden. Here we meet among other things, the first example of the motive to become dominant in the Hobbits, that the great policies of world history, the wheels of the world, are often turned not by the lords and governors, even gods, but by the seemingly unknown and weak, owing to the secret life in creation, and the part unknowable to all wisdom but one that resides in the intrusions of the children of God into the drama. 
It is Beren, the outlawed mortal who succeeds, with the help of Luthien, a mere maiden, even if an elf of royalty, where all the armies and warriors have failed. He penetrates the stronghold of the enemy and wrests one of the Silmarilli from the Iron Crown. Thus he wins the hand of Luthien, and the first marriage of mortal and immortal is achieved. As such, the story is, I think, a beautiful and powerful heroic fairy romance. Receivable in itself with only a very general vague knowledge of the background, but it is also a fundamental link in the cycle, deprived of its full significance out of its place therein. For the capture of the Silmaril, a supreme victory leads to disaster. The oath of the sons of Feanor becomes operative, and lust for the Silmaril brings all the kingdoms of the elves to ruin. There are other stories, almost equally full in treatment and equally independent and yet linked to the general history. There is The Children of Hurin, the tragic tale of Turin Turumbar and his sister Niniel, of which Turin is the hero, a figure that might be said by people who like that sort of thing, though it is not very useful, to be derived from elements in Sigurd the Volsung, Oedipus and the Finnish Kulavar. There is the fall of Gondolin, the chief elvish stronghold, and the tale or tales of Arendil the Wanderer, who is important as the person who brings the Silmarillion to its end, and as providing in his offspring the main links to and persons in the tales of later ages. His function as a representative of both kindreds, elves and men, is to find a sea passage back to the land of the gods, and as ambassador persuade them to take thought again for the exiles, to pity them and rescue them from the enemy. His wife, Elfwing, descends from Luthien and still possesses the Silmaril, but the curse still works, and Arendil's house is destroyed by the sons of Feanor. But this provides the solution. Elwing, casting herself into the sea to save the jewel, comes to Arendil, and with the power of the great gem they pass at last to Valinor, and accomplish their errand, at the cost of never being allowed to return or dwell again with elves or men. The gods then move again, and great power comes out of the west, and the stronghold of the enemy is destroyed, and he himself is thrust out of the world into the void, never to reappear there in incarnate form again. The remaining two Silmaril are regained from the Iron Crown, only to be lost. The last two sons of Feanor, compelled by their oath, steal them, and are destroyed by them, casting themselves into the sea and the pits of the earth. The ship of Orendil, adorned, with the last Silmaril, is set in heaven as the brightest star. So ends the Silmarillion and the tales of the First Age. The next cycle deals, or would deal, with the Second Age, but it is on earth a dark age, and not very much of its history is or need be told. In the great battles against the first enemy, the lands were broken and ruined, and the west of Middle-earth became desolate. We learn that the exiled elves were, if not commanded, at least sternly counselled to return into the west, and there be at peace. They were not to dwell permanently in Valinor again, but in the lonely isle of Eresia, within sight of the Blessed Realm. 
the men of the three houses were rewarded for their valour and faithful alliance by being allowed to dwell westermost of all mortals in the Atlantis Isle of Numenor. The doom or gift of God of mortality. The gods, of course, cannot abrogate, but the Numenorians have a great span of life. They set sail and leave Middle-earth and establish a great kingdom of mariners just within sight of Eresea, but not of Valinor. Most of the High Elves depart also back into the West. Not all. Some men, akin to the Numenorians, remain in the land, not far from the shores of the sea. Some of the exiles will not return or delay their return. For the way west is ever open to the immortals, and in the grey havens ships are ever ready to sail away forever. Also the orcs and goblins and other monsters bred by the first enemy are not wholly destroyed. And there is Sauron. In the Silmarillion and Tales of the First Age, Sauron was a being of Valinor perverted to the service of the enemy, and becoming his chief captain and servant. He repents in fear when the first enemy is utterly defeated, but in the end does not do as he was commanded, return to the judgment of the gods. He lingers in Middle-earth, very slowly, beginning with fair motives, the reorganising and rehabilitation of the ruin of Middle-earth, neglected by the gods. He becomes a reincarnation of evil and a thing lusting for complete power, and so consumed ever more fiercely with hate, especially of gods and elves. All through the twilight of the Second Age, the shadow is growing in the east of Middle-earth, spreading its sway more and more over men, who multiply as the elves begin to fade. The three main themes are thus, the delaying elves that lingered in Middle-earth, Sauron's growth to a new dark lord, master and god of men, and Numenor Atlantis. They are dealt with analytically, and in two tales or accounts. The Rings of Power and the Downfall of Numenor, both are the essential background to The Hobbit and its sequel. In the first, we see a sort of second fall, or at least error, of the elves. There was nothing wrong, essentially, in their lingering against council, still sadly with the mortal lands of their old heroic deeds. But they wanted to have their cake without eating it. They wanted the peace and bliss and perfect memory of the West, and yet to remain on the ordinary earth, where their prestige as the highest people, above wild elves, dwarfs and men, was greater than at the bottom of the hierarchy of Valinor. They thus became obsessed with fading, the mode in which the changes of time, the lore of the world under the sun, was perceived by them. They became sad, and their art, shall we say, antiquarian, and their efforts all really a kind of embalming, even though they also retained the old motive of their kind, the adornment of earth and the healing of its hurts. We hear of a lingering kingdom in the extreme northwest, more or less in what was left in the old lands of Silmarillion, under Gilgalad, and of other settlements such as Imladris, Rivendell near Elrond, and the Great One at Eregion, at the western feet of the Misty Mountains, adjacent to the mines of Moria. 
the major realm of the dwarfs in the Second Age. There arose a friendship between the usually hostile folk of elves and dwarfs for the first and only time, and Smithcraft reached its highest development. But many of the elves listened to Sauron. He was still fair in that early time, and his motives and those of the elves seemed to go partly together. The healing of the desolate lands. Sauron found their weak point in suggesting that Helping one another, they could make the western Middle-earth as beautiful as Valinor. It was really a veiled attack on the gods, an incitement to try and make a separate, independent paradise. Gilgalad repulsed all such overtures, as also did Elrond. But at Aragion, great work began, and the elves came their nearest to falling to magic and machinery. With the aid of Sauron's law, they made the rings of power. Power is an ominous and sinister word in all these tales, except as applied to the gods. The chief power of all the rings alike was the prevention of slowing of decay, i.e. change viewed as a regrettable thing, the preservation of what is desired or loved, or its semblance this is more or less an elvish motive, but also they enhance the natural powers of a possessor, thus approaching magic, a motive easily corruptible into evil, a lust for domination. And finally, they had other powers, more directly derived from Sauron, the necromancer, so he is called as he casts a fleeing shadow and presage on the pages of the Hobbit such as rendering invisible the material body and making things of the invisible world visible. The elves of Eregion made three supremely beautiful and powerful rings, almost solely of their own imagination, and directed to the preservation of beauty. They did not uh, confer invincibility, but secretly in the subterranean fire, in his own black land, Sauron made one ring, the ruling ring, that contained the powers of all the others and controlled them, so that its wearer could see the thoughts of all those that used the lesser rings, could govern all that they did, and in the end could utterly enslave them. He reckoned, however, without the wisdom and subtle perceptions of the elves. The moment he assumed the one, they were aware of it, and of his secret purpose, and were afraid. They hid the three rings, so that not even Sauron ever discovered where they were, and they remained unsullied. The others they tried to destroy. In the resulting war between Sauron and the elves, Middle-earth, especially in the west, was further ruined. Erigion was captured and destroyed, and Sauron seized many rings of power. These he gave, for their ultimate corruption and enslavement, to those who would accept them, out of ambition or greed. Hence the ancient rhyme that appears as the leet motif of the Lord of the Rings. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone, nine for mortal men doomed to die, one for the dark lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. Sauron became thus almost supreme in Middle-earth. The elves held out in secret places not yet revealed, 
The last elf kingdom of Gilgalad is maintained precariously on the extreme west shores. Where are the havens of the ships? Elrond, the half-elvin, son of Arendil, maintains a kind of enchanted sanctuary at Imladris, in English, Rivendell, on the extreme eastern margin of the western lands. Uh, note. Elrond symbolises throughout the ancient wisdom and his house represents law. The preservation in reverent memory of all tradition concerning the good, wise and beautiful. It is not a scene of action, but of reflection. Thus, it is a place visited on the way to all deeds or adventures. It may prove to be on the direct road, as in The Hobbit, but it may be necessary to go from there in a totally unexpected course. So necessarily, in The Lord of the Rings, having escaped to Elrond from the imminent pursuit of present evil, the hero departs in a wholly new direction, to go and face it at its source. It continued, But Sauron dominates all the multiplying hordes of men that have had no contact with the elves, and so indirectly with the true and unfallen Valar and gods. He rules a growing empire from the great dark tower of Barad-dûr in Mordor, near to the Mountain of Fire, wielding the One Ring. But to achieve this, he had been obliged to let a great part of his own inherent power, a frequent and very significant motive in myth and fairy story, pass into the One Ring. While he wore it, his power on Earth was actually enhanced. But even if he did not wear it, that power existed and was in rapport with itself. He was not diminished, unless some other seized it and became possessed of it. If that happened, the new possessor could, if sufficiently strong and heroic by nature, challenge Sauron, become master of all he had learned or done since the making of the One Ring, and so overthrow him and usurp his place. This was the essential weakness he had introduced into his situation in his effort, largely unsuccessful, to enslave the elves, and in his desire to establish a control of the minds and wills of his servants. There was another weakness. If the One Ring was actually unmade, annihilated, then its power would be dissolved. Sauron's own being would be diminished to vanishing point. Then he would be reduced to a shadow, a mere memory of malicious will, but that he never contemplated nor feared. The Ring was unbreakable by any smithcraft less than his own. It was indissoluble in any fire, save the undying subterranean fire where it was made, and that was unapproachable in Mordor. Also, so great was the ring's power of lust that anyone who used it became mastered by it. It was beyond the strength of any will, even his own, to injure it, cast it away, or neglect it. So he thought. It was in any case on his finger. Thus, as the Second Age draws on, we have a great kingdom and evil theocracy, for Sauron is also the god of his slaves, growing up in Middle-earth. In the west, actually, the north-west is the only part clearly envisaged in these tales, lie the precarious refugees of the elves, while men in those parts remain more or less uncorrupted if ignorant. The better and nobler sort of men are in fact the kin of those that had departed to Numenor, but remain in a simple Homeric state of patriarchal, and tribal life. Meanwhile, Numenor has grown in wealth, 
wisdom and glory, under its lines of great kings of long life, directly descended from Elros, Erindil's son, brother of Elrond. The downfall of Numenor, the second fall of man, or man rehabilitated but still mortal, brings on the catastrophic end, not only of the Second Age, but of the Old World, the primeval world of legend, envisaged as flat and bounded. After which the Third Age began, a twilight age, a medium avium, the first of the broken and changed world, the last of the lingering dominion of visible, fully incarnate elves, and the last also in which evil assumes a single, dominant, incarnate shape. The downfall is partly the result of an inner weakness in men, Consequent, if you will, upon the first four, unrecorded in these tales, repented but not finally healed. Reward on earth is more dangerous for men than punishment. The fall is achieved by the cunning of Sauron in exploiting this weakness. Its central theme is, inevitably, I think, in a story of man, a ban or prohibition. The Numenorians dwell within far sight of the easternmost immortal land, Eresea, and as the only men to speak an elvish tongue learned in the days of their alliance, they are in constant communication with their ancient friends and allies, either in the bliss of Eresea or in the kingdom of Gilgalad on the shores of Middle-earth. They became thus in appearance and even in powers of mind hardly distinguishable from the elves, but they remained mortal, even though rewarded by a triple or more than triple span of years. Their reward is their undoing, or the means of their temptation. Their long life aids their achievements in art and wisdom, but breeds a possessive attitude to these things, and desire awakes for more time for their enjoyment. Foreseeing this in part, the gods laid a ban on the Numenorians from the beginning. They must never sail to Eresea, nor westward out of sight of their own land, in all other directions they could go as they would. They must not set foot on immortal lands, and so become enamoured of an immortality within the world, which was against their law, the special doom or gift of Iluvatar, God, and which their nature could not in fact endure. Note, the view is taken as clearly reappears later in the case of the hobbits that have the ring for a while, that each kind has a natural span, integral to its biological and spiritual nature. This cannot really be increased qualitatively or quantitatively, so that prolongation in time is like stretching a wire out over torta, or spreading butter even thinner. It becomes an intolerable torment. There are three phases in their fall from grace. First, acquiescence, obedience that is free and willing, though without complete understanding. Then for long they obey unwillingly, murmuring more and more openly. Finally they rebel, and a rift appears between the king's men and rebels, and the small minority of persecuted faithful. In the first stage, being men of peace, their courage is devoted to sea voyages. As descendants of Arendel, they became the supreme mariners, and being barred from the west, they set sail to the outermost north and south and east. 
Mostly they come to the west shores of Middle-earth, where they aid the elves and men against Sauron, and incur his undying hatred. In those days, they would come amongst wild men as almost divine benefactors, bringing gifts of arts and knowledge, and passing away again, leaving many legends behind of kings and gods out of the sunset. In the Second Age, the days of pride and glory, and grudging of the ban, they began to seek wealth rather than bliss. The desire to escape death produced a cult of the dead, and they lavished wealth and art on tombs and memorials. They now had settlements on the west shores, but these became rather strongholds and factories of lords seeking wealth, and the Numenorians became tax-gatherers, carrying off over the sea ever more and more goods in their great ships. The Numenorians began the forging of arms and engines. This phase ended, and the last began with the ascent of the throne by the 13th king of the line of Elros, Tarkelion the Golden, the most powerful and proud of all kings. When he learned that Sauron had taken the title of King of Kings and Lord of the World, he resolved to put down the Pretender. He goes in strength and majesty to Middle-earth, and so vast is his armament, and so terrible are the Numenorians in the day of their glory, that Sauron's servants will not face them. Sauron humbles himself, does homage to Tarkelion, and is carried off to Numenor as hostage and prisoner. But there he swiftly rises by his cunning and knowledge from servant to chief counsellor of the king, and seduces the king and most of the lords and people with his lies. He denies the existence of God, saying that the one is a mere invention of the jealous Valar of the West, the oracle of their own wishes. The chief of the gods is he that dwells in the void, who will conquer in the end, and in the void make endless realms for his servants. The ban is only a lying device of fear to restrain the kings of men from seizing everlasting life and rivalling the Valar. A new religion, the worship of the dark, with its temple under Sauron, arises. The faithful are persecuted and sacrificed, the Numenorians carry their evil also to Middle-earth, and there become cruel and wicked lords of necromancy, slaying and tormenting men, and the old legends are overlaid with dark tales of horror. This does not happen, however, in the Northwest, for thither, because of the elves, only the faithful who remain elf friends will come. The chief haven of the good Numenorians is near the mouth of the great river Anduin. Thence the still beneficent influence of Numenor spreads up the river and along the coasts as far north as the realm of Gilgalad, as a common speech grows up. But at last, Sauron's plot comes to fulfilment. Tarkelion feels old age and death approaching, and he listens to the last prompting of Sauron, and building the greatest of all armadas, he sets sail into the west, breaking the ban and going up with war to wrest from the gods Everlasting life within the circles of the world. Faced by this rebellion of appalling folly and blasphemy, and also real peril, for the Numenorians, directed by Sauron, could have wrought ruin in Valinor itself, the Valar laid down their delegated power and appealed to God, and received the power and permission to deal with the situation. The old world is broken, 
and changed. A chasm is opened in the sea, and Tarkelion and his armada is engulfed. Numenor itself on the edge of the rift topples and vanishes forever, with all its glory in the abyss. Thereafter there is no visible dwelling of the divine or immortal on earth. Valinor or Paradise, and even Eresea are removed, remaining only in the memory of the earth. Men may sail now west if they will, as far as they may, and come no nearer to Valinor or the blessed realm, but return only into the east and so back again, for the world is round and finite and a circle inescapable, save by death. Only the immortals, the lingering elves, may still, if they will, wearying of the circle of the world, take ship and find the straight way, and come to the ancient or true west, and be at peace. So the end of the Second Age draws on, in a major catastrophe, but it is not yet quite concluded. From the cataclysm there are survivors, Elendil the Fair, Chief of the Faithful. His name means Elfriend, and his son Isildur, an Anirian. Elendil, a Nochian figure, who has held off from the rebellion and kept ships manned and furnished off the east coast of Numenor, flees before the overwhelming storm of the wrath of the west, and is borne high upon the towering waves that bring ruin to the west of the Middle-earth. He and his folk are cast away as exiles upon the shores. There they established the Numenorean kingdoms of Arnor, in the north close to the realm of Gilgalad, and Gondor, about the mouths of the Anduin, further south. Sauron, being an immortal, hardly escapes the ruin of Numenor and returns to Mordor, where, after a while, he is strong enough to challenge the exiles of Numenor. The Second Age ends with the last alliance of elves and men and the great siege of Mordor. It ends with the overthrow of Sauron, and destruction of the second visible incarnation of evil, but at a cost, and with one disastrous mistake. Gilgalad and Elendil are slain in the act of slaying Sauron. Isildur, Elendil's son, cuts the ring from Sauron's hand, and his power departs, and his spirit flees into the shadows. But the evil begins to work. Isildur claims the ring as his own, as the were-guild, of his father, and refuses to cast it into the fire nearby. He marches away, but is drowned in the great river, and the ring is lost, passing out of all knowledge. But it is not unmade, and the dark tower, built with its aid, still stands, empty but not destroyed. So ends the Second Age, with the coming of the Numenorean realms, and the passing of the last kingship of the High Elves. So ends the letter. If you're looking for a copy of it yourself, you'll find it relatively easy. It's a letter from 1951, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, to Milton Waldman. I'm going to go now. Anyway. I really enjoyed this letter. I thought it was really insightful and clarified a number of things for me personally. All right, I'll see you later. Bye-bye. Cheers.